listening to Ira Harmon's Pop Machine on WHPK 88.5 FM in Chicago. Streaming live worldwide on the internet. Everyone has a community. A neighborhood, school, place of worship, or other chosen groups. Communities can provide support when you need it, including helping your kids avoid underage drinking and other substance use. Learn more at talktheyhearyou.samsa.gov. What is dementia? Is it the same as Alzheimer's? If someone has memory loss, does that mean they have dementia? Millions of Americans ask these questions every day. Hello, I'm Kevin Jameson, volunteer and president of the Dementia Society of America. Please request our free guide filled with facts about dementia and ways you can keep your brain as healthy as possible. Go to 1-800-Dementia.org or call 1-800-Dementia. You want to live your life to the fullest and we can help. Banana juice. Oh, banana juice. Oh. Banana juice. Oh, Jane, need banana juice. Oh, banana juice. Oh, banana juice. Banana juice. Honey, I'll make you cry 
Now your nuts hang down like a damn bell clapper And your dick stands up like a steeple Your goddamn asshole stands open like a church door And the crab walks in like people Oh, shit! Oh, Baby won't shave them dry A big sow gets fat from eating corn And a pig gets fat from sucking Really see this horror fat like I am Great God, I got fat to fuck
Keep me on the run Oh, baby, baby, baby Won't you save me some Won't you lend me some Won't you tell where I got it from It will be a lot of fun Baby, baby, won't you lend me some Be so doggone dumb Pretty mama, pretty mama Won't you sell me some Be sure and save me some Won't tell where I got it from It's the best under the sun Baby, baby Won't you sell me some
Papa jumped up and said the same. She said, if you keep fooling around with the women, somebody gonna soon come and change your name. I hollered, oh, the
You're driving me into 
almost drive me wild I want to make a movie too And have a little fun with I want to make violent love to you you done to me, baby, made me love you day and night. Look what you done to me, baby, made me love you day and night. You got me walking and talking, baby, you know that ain't right. Well, don't you leave Don't you leave me, baby, baby, don't you daddy try Well, if you leave me, baby, you know you're gonna make me cry That you 
Take a smoke now. Everybody take a break. Just leave the piano myself up here. I'm gonna play this by myself, just the piano and myself, just the way I feel. Oh yeah. Oh, I know it sounds good to you, baby. 
play this blues, it makes me think about some of my used to be. I've met a lot of fine girls in my life. Some good, some bad. But I never will forget some of those girls that I met. I remember Alice, and that was Lucille, and that was Doretha, and I can't forget Elsa, all those girls give me the blues, and then that was Nancy, yeah, I can see them all sitting out there in the house tonight, you know. Said they listen to me, baby. Yeah. Well, Detroit gonna play the blues for you this morning. That's me, baby. Detroit, Michigan kid. I'm gonna do this for myself right here. Sweet talk to me, baby. 
all night long Yeah. 
till my feet got soaking wet. Sit on the corner till my feet got soaking wet. These are the words I said to each and every man I met. If you ain't got a dollar, give me a Yeah, she got up and said, I mean, yeah, she got up and said, yeah. Hot tamales and the red hot. Yeah, she got up and said, yeah. Hot tamales and the red hot. Yeah, she got up and said. 
Around, she really turns me on. I can't waste 
woman, the woman that I love. A is for an angel, you know, the one I'm speaking of. A S is for the sweet talk, she whispers in my ear. T is for the thrill I get whenever she's near. E stands for eternal, now and evermore. He just stands for darling. Don't ever let me go. I get wasted. Oh yeah. W A S T E D. WHPK Radio, 88.5 FM on the dial, here in Chicago. 
Attention men, under the age of 35, you know what really impresses the ladies? When a guy has a few drinks and later gets pulled over for buzz driving. That could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. There goes let's grab dinner and a movie. Oh, I know. You drive more carefully when you're buzzed. You've proven that hundreds of times. A woman admires that kind of confidence. And you've practiced how to speak if a cop does pull you over. Slowly, clearly, and politely like, good evening, officer. A woman admires that kind of foresight. And what woman doesn't find it adorable that you call it buzzed even though the law calls it drunk? You could kiss $10,000 goodbye, along with any chance of having a girlfriend. Because nothing says, I'm a catch, more than a guy who lives in his parents' basement and calls it my place. Buzzed, busted, and broke. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. So I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in ten young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Ira Harmon's Pop Machine. It's mentally nutritious. And now, a jack about resistance. As it turns out, it's not futile after all. It turns out it's something entirely different. Hey, let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud, because this is a highly personal question, and I can't hear you anyway. But hearing you isn't the point. So here's the question. You ready? What did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a little kid, grown-ups would ask you what you wanted to be when you grew up. And you would say all kinds of outrageous things because it didn't seem like an improbability to you. It didn't even seem impossible. All options were on the table. An astronaut? They're real and they exist. And if you wanted to be one, then it was possible, right? You didn't know a shirt from Shinola then. You were full of promise, dreams, and positive attitude. The little kid that I know of says to an adult as an answer to that question, I wanted to be such and so, but after looking around in my short time on earth, I realized that it's just a pipe dream, and I might as well start thinking about what soul-crushing job I can get to make ends meet. Now when you ask a teenager or a young adult what they want to do with their lives, a lot of times you get a bullshit answer. They just tell you something that they think you want to hear, so you leave them alone. It's painful for them to think about the answer to that question because they've looked around and now they realize 
that no one is going to ring their doorbell and hand them everything they ever wanted just because they're here on the planet taking up space. That delusion has faded sometime around the age of 16. That's usually when the life unlived starts to take a back seat to the pressing realities of what the world has in store for them. The reality of life starts to close in on them and teenage angst starts to manifest itself in rebel behavior, drug use, sexual promiscuity, and acting out. The usual teenager BS. Like they say, everyone loves children, but nobody wants a teenager. And this is some of the reasons why. If you, the parent, haven't been good with planning their transition into life as a contributing member of society, then you get a teenager filled with confusion and rage. You get a rebel without a cause. And they may never grow up immature. They may become stuck as teenagers for life. It happens. You probably know some 40-year-old teenagers that bristle against their unlived potential. They usually wind up as supervisors. Do you have a dream? Are you living the life you want to live? Or the life you happen to be living? I guess we do only live twice. The life we want to live and the life we're forced to live. Or you can choose to look at it as the life we live and the unlived life we wanted to live but somehow couldn't get to. You know, maybe you did something that derailed everything, like say you got that girl across the alley pregnant and now you have to raise a child together. Or you went to jail because you thought hanging out with the cool people made you somebody. Maybe you got hooked on substances that you abused to the point that it's the only reason you get out of bed in the morning. When you do get out of bed. Or maybe every two dollars you get in your pocket you run to the boat with it and gamble all your promise away. Another form of addiction, another form of reacting against the unlived life. You never planned anything, and so life is what it is. You throw up your hands and say dumb stuff like, it is what it is. You chase the dragon, and you never catch it by the tail. Decades go by, and you still find yourself in the same boat, filled with other fools who can't figure it out either. You're a ship of fools. Why do you think that is? What's getting in the way of your living your dream? Do you have an answer for that question? You might have justifications that sound like, I like to eat, I need a place to stay, you know, a roof over my head, I have kids and they gotta eat, they need clothes and education and thousand dollar parties for their first birthday. What? Okay, I just threw that one in there because I don't understand spending over a thousand bucks for a birthday bash for a kid who won't know what's going on anyway, let alone remember it. Okay, so you took cell phone video so you have a record of what you did for the kid when it was too young to give a damn. You think after you squander the kid's education fund on BS that it'll appreciate the video of memories it doesn't remember and that those memories will eclipse the memories it could have had if it got a decent education instead and the money was spent more wisely. Do you think when the kid is old enough to appreciate the video that there will still be cell phones around to watch it on? Technology changes rapidly. From home movies on 8mm to VHS video shot on camcorders to digital 8 to video disc to cell phones. You get the idea. All that trouble 
can't really be for the one-year-old. It's an excuse to have a party and make some other grown-ass people jealous of something stupid like that. Again, chafing against the unlived life. It's not for the sake of the one-year-old. The one-year-old is just an excuse for something else that's going on. Trying to fill an empty hole for a life that is not being lived. A life that has been deferred. You couldn't live your unlived life, so you do dumb consumer stuff to make up for it. That's what consumerism is for, to keep us all placated. You say you did it for your one-year-old so they will know that you love them. Well, a one-year-old doesn't really understand that it's not even cool to go to the toilet in their shorts. They don't even know that public toilets exist, let alone how to operate one. The concept of celebrating the beginning of their second orbit around the sun is well beyond a one-year-old's comprehension. It's one of life's little absurdities. Now don't get confused, the first birthday celebrates the beginning of year two and marks the end of year one. You're one years old, or one year old, when you start year two. Birthdays celebrate the end of whatever age you're claiming even though it's the start of the next age. Like the 20th century was 1900 to 1999. And as soon as we hit 2000, we started the 21st century because we finished the 20th. When we get to 2099, we will have made it to the cusp of the 22nd century. And I doubt that we will be any more enlightened than we are at this very moment. Stupid can go backwards for centuries and forwards. Just look at history. So we might as well party like it's 2099. Having a dream can be absurd, depending on the dream. Maybe your dream is to get superpowers and fly through the sky unaided and deflect bullets off your butt cheeks like Superman. Lord knows a bulletproof black man like Luke Cage is every trigger happy cop's worst nightmare. If that's your dream, who am I to knock it? It's your dream and you have a right to it, no matter how cuckoo it sounds to the rest of us. But at this point, I think it's time to split hairs and call a bulletproof black man a fantasy and not a dream. After all, Dr. King didn't start his famous speech with, I have a fantasy, even though it seems to have turned out to be one, if you know what I mean. By the way, have you ever noticed that in the old Superman television show, George Reeves would stand there arms akimbo while the criminals who should have known better emptied their guns into his chest then they would throw the empty pistols to superman and he would duck out of the way huh i thought you were impervious to bullets apparently a thrown empty gun would put a hurting on superman like kryptonite the reality of the situation could not be avoided a huge chunk of metal hurled at the chest of george reeves the actor would hurt like hell Maybe they should have put rubber guns in the budget. I wouldn't want to get hit by a rubber gun either. That could still hurt. But we overlook little breaks in a fictional dream like that so we can enjoy the entertainment. It is ironic that the Superman actor Reeves' life would end with a bullet. Reality versus fiction. Reality wins hands down. Even if the realness of reality can be debated. Breaks with reality can hurt us, which is why a lot of us abandon our dreams. Life can really get in the way.
When we're born, we have unlimited possibilities, no matter how shaky the start is. There is an unseen enemy, and Stephen Pressfield has a book that describes it. The book is titled The War of Art, and the unseen enemy he describes is called Resistance. And resistance is why some of us get shortchanged and never realize our dreams. We get our asses kicked by resistance, which is a sneaky and very treacherous villain. Resistance takes many forms and is always out to undermine our resolve. It does major things to screw us up, and little things, like urging us to take that cigarette break. And you know deep down that instead of standing out in the cold sucking on a tiny tailpipe full of noxious gas, that we could be doing something better with all that time that smoking steals from us. We even say that the reason we aren't wealthy and successful like some celebrity is because they had to make a blood sacrifice and suck somebody's crotch at a weird ritual that was filmed by the Illuminati so they can't tell anybody about it. Really? This is a really sorry excuse for not getting your own act together. It's also so ridiculous that no one dares to refute it, like some other religious apocrypha that remains unchallenged. See, fear is the enemy, and it powers the resistance that keeps us from moving to a higher plane from where we exist day to day. I don't have the time to get into the complexities of resistance, but I can point you to a book I've been reading about it, The War of Art. That's the title of the book, subtitled Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles. It's by Stephen Pressfield. If you didn't get that down, just go to thepopmachine.net and you'll find the information about the book there. And I don't get any kickback from mentioning the book. It's something I'm reading just to be reading it. And I just thought some of you might like to get some insight on how to improve the level you're on in your attempt to get to the next phase in your life. Or you can continue to believe that you have to make a blood sacrifice or lick somebody's balloon knot on camera to get anywhere in life. What you believe is what you believe. The choice is yours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to get back to my secret cult meeting. They're serving fried sacrifice sandwiches for lunch today. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. That was Jacko. Jacko, the three-quarter Irish setter, a good dog, usually a well-behaved dog, friend to the children of Manchester Village, Vermont, an inquisitive dog. Whatever disturbs him isn't buried very deep. Listen to him digging. Smart dog. He's found what he was after. He's tugging at it. Gets it. Good dog. What have you got there, Jacko? A bone. Looks like a leg bone, doesn't it? A human leg bone. Tonight, my report to you on the Bourne Brothers and the Hangman. A study in nip and tuck. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland.
They were fighting battles on Lake Champlain in 1812, but across the state, forests away and mountains apart, the village of Manchester sent peaceful fans of chimney smoke into the February air. It was ebb of winter and edge of spring. It was snow flurry and thaw and chill sunlight. Here, the Battenkill River flowed swift and dark down from the green mountains and crusted icily near its banks and past the village, then flowed swift and dark away. And where the snow had melted, the soil glistened and was rich and black. Farmhouses gleamed white. And where the furrow began, the shallow furrow that deepened and roughened and slowly rose up the mountainside and became the gorge that cut across the face of Mount Equinox. Where it gently began was the backyard of the house of Russell and Sally Colvin. And inside it... He's sleeping. Asleep? Why? Why asleep? What did you put him to sleep for? Please... There's moonlight on the snow, and there's moonlight on the mountain, and I promised my son he'd see. Why do you do that? Why do you fill his mind with lies and fancies? There's little men on the mountain tonight, and I told my son he'd see them. Uh, Lewis! Don't wake him, Russell, don't wake him. Stop hanging in on my arm, woman. Russell! Stop hanging on my arm! Crazy! Crazy man! <laughs> Wake! Wake, son. I'll bundle you and it's up the mountain we'll go tonight with you riding my shoulders. And little men we'll find. Them at their bowls and singing and dancing. And we'll join them. Come with me, son. Up the path the moonlight makes on the mountain snow. Up the path the moonlight makes. As any mother knows, this is an upsetting experience. And as Sally Colvin knew, this was not the first experience of its kind. Sometimes her husband would hoist her son on his back and walk away from the house and not come back for days at a time. And when they did, they would smile at each other secret smiles and say nothing of where they had been. And there were secret words between them that Sally could not understand and signs and small patterns of dance and then great bursts of laughter. And this time, the time when Russell took his son up the path the moonlight made and they returned two days later... sleep the day away and the night, <laughs> the sun, and dream of the fancies we've seen in the little men. Sleep. Sleep. Tell me, tell me what... Sister, come in. What can I do for you in the morning? Hold me. Hold me. Sister. Sister to me, what troubles you? (laughs) Him again? Your husband? Yes. Oh, yes. And what? What he's doing to my son. Soon, soon. What? My son 
man will become as mad as my husband. They speak of creatures in the mist in the gorge, and starbursts and moon. Brother, brother Stephen Bourne. What do you want me to do? I don't know. I don't know. He's a stronger man than I. There's not much I can do. But you and our brother Jesse Bourne, together you could do it. Don't speak to me of Jesse, him that I hate. But me, what of me? Speak no more of it. Save me. Save me, Stephen Bourne. That's what I ask of you. Sister. Save me. How? Very well, you know how. You and Jesse, you know it and you have said it. Come with me to our brother's forge and make peace and save me, your sister. I'm no blacksmith, Jesse, and I've not got the sinews of you, but listen to your sister and what her trouble is, or I'll try you. Will you now? Will you? Me, you can split your head to your heart in a stroke. Try me, will you? Then do it. Stop it! Stop it! Listen. Listen to me. I'm being killed, and my death is the madness around me. What are you saying? Of a husband. Let her say it. And what he does to my child... I've heard strangenesses in the village of your husband, sister. And when I've heard them, I've smiled to myself in remembering. This is the man you needed to marry, sister. Would die without, sister. And now he's a daft and a loon. Now he's... Hear her, hear her out. Say on, sister. He takes Lewis with him on walkings. For days. And they return. And there are secrets and madnesses. And loneliness for you. I care nothing of it. I care only for my son. Jesse. Jesse. Take his hand, Jesse Bourne, and be brothers again. For there is a bond now. The need to help me. Yes. And now listen to me. There where the ravine starts. By the field where it is rocky. I will send my husband there. A plotter, our sister. I will send my husband there tomorrow in the morning. Will you be there? Will the both of you be there? We'll be there. Now, hear to me, son, the way I do it. Come a goblin, come a teeny, come an elfin, come a greeny, come about, come about, come about all, and you shall... Russell. I'll finish it for you later, son. Russell. Russell. There you are, with your son mute and agape at you again. What do you want? It's a new morning and the new season of spring's coming in with it. And so? And so there's work. And you need not tell me of it. There's no work I do not do on this farm. I need no telling of it. In the upper field and where the rocks are easy to pull from the ground now that the thaw has softened it. I know of it. 
You need not remind me. Tonight the night frost may harden the ground again. I know it, I know it. Then go. I'll be back, son. Think hard of the verse I taught you. The way he went, did Russell Colvin, on this new morning toward the upper field. He'd not gone 20 yards when he stopped. Gold. Sparkle of sun on Vermont granite. Small pool of sparkle. Gold. And he picked it up and put it in his pocket. Then on again, the long way around, through the grove of naked spruce, to give throat to the new season. Oh! And on and on, to the brook now, and stop beside it. And kneel beside it and listen. Yes. Yes. Then through a thicket and into the upper field and the surprise in store for him. Oh, Russell. Hello, Jesse Boyne. Stephen. Oh, brother-in-law. What do you hear? To help you, Russell. To do what? To help you clear the rocks now that the ground is soft with thaw. And how do you know I'm here to do that? How indeed. I need not your help. I'm hearing you do, brother-in-law. I'm hearing that way, too. We're in hearing you don't do well by our sister, Russell. That's what we hear most of. And who's saying that? Our sister, your wife's saying it, Russell. More wife than sister, so it's not of your business. So it's off the land with you, the two of you. Oh, now, indeed. What you have to in that branch for, Stephen? I'm aiming to... Brain you with it. You are aiming the same, Jesse? Going to help. Then let's get to it and we'll see. Let's get to it indeed. Stephen Bourne used the branch as a club, and with excellent teamwork, he and his brother Jesse won the fight. You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. Tomorrow evening, CBS Radio invites you again to mystery and intrigue, enhanced by the presence of Miss Marlena Dietrich. This Thursday, Miss Dietrich's adventure leads her to a little town in southern France, where stories of buried treasure have been bruited loudly enough to gather rapscallions of reprehensible inclination from all corners of Europe. Time for Love is heard tomorrow evening on most of these same stations. And now, once again, Thomas Highland in the second act of Crime Classics, and his report to you on the Bourne Brothers and the Hangman. A study in nip and tuck. It was a good spring... April of 1812 was the gentlest in the memory of those who lived on the soft shoulder of Mount Equinox in Vermont, 
There were rumors of marchings and torch and war outside, but no one paid much attention. They were more important things, church, crops, and children, living to be done in the green mountains, the crackling air to be breathed, roam away through the soft fall of twilight and press a cheek against the warmth of an animal. Wondrous sunsets and tomorrow a wondrous dawn. Good place and good time, this valley. And one morning, as a matter of fact, on the morning after the Bourne brothers had done an errand for their sister... Good morning, Mrs. Wyman. And to you, Mrs. Colvin. A sweet morning. Tis. And what may I do for you? It's Wednesday. And so it is. So I've come again so your mister can drive me to the village again. He to shop for you and me for mine. He's not here. Oh, no. In the field, then? Not in the field. Oh, of course he is not, for I saw your son Lewis at play just outside the door, and he would be in the fields with his daddy dear, were his daddy dear in the fields. You'll be late to market, Mrs. Wyman. Where's the dear man, your husband, Mrs. Colvin? Gone. Where gone? To the mountain. Oh? I think. And when will he return? I don't know. Oh, such a dear man. And the dear fancies he sees and tells you of. Ah, oh, what a fortunate woman you are, Mrs. Colvin. I've cleaning to do, Mrs. Wyman. Busy you are, I know, Mrs. Colvin, preparing supper for you and your beautiful child. But it's a month since the village has seen your husband last. And for the last week it's been raining. And if the dear Mr. Colvin is in the mountains, as you say... What then, Mrs. Colvin? What then? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe what? Maybe he has gone to war. It's a year now, Mrs. Colvin. Have you heard from the dear man? Ah, it's a cruel war. I came to wish the all of you... You, Mrs. Colvin, and you, Stephen Bourne, and Jesse Bourne, a happy new year to you. May 1817 be a blessing to all of you. And to you, Mrs. Wyman. Happy new year, Mrs. Wyman. Happy new year. And a pity Mr. Colvin's not here. I suppose he'll never return now, will he? New 
<laughs> now stop your crying, Sally. Boys are boys. Only fourteen. My son, Louis. I run off to join the militia. What's that? It's most what all boys doing now. Maybe I've failed. What are you saying, sister? Maybe the whole thing was done wrong. What wrong? Seven years since he's had no father. Maybe his father should have been close to him. The loneliness and... again, sister. Or my son. Oh! Oh! Hey, what's the outcry? See what, Stephen? What is it, Sheriff Skinner? See there, a fire to Dr. Glazier's barn. Fetch a bucket in quick. Yes. Jesse, there's a fire to Dr. Glazier's barn. You surely know the barn, Jesse. And in 1819, fires were not very easy to control. It was a matter of having enough men and enough buckets to reach from the fire to the stream. And Dr. Glazier's barn was not notably close to the stream. Nor were there enough men nor buckets. So... The fire had its own way. It burned the barn to the ground. And later, when the ashes had cooled and while Sheriff Skinner was consoling Dr. Glazier on his loss... The sheriff's dog... Ah, what you digging there, Jacko? Ah, find something, Jacko. Bring it here, Jacko. Ah, let's see what you got there. A bone. Funny-looking bone, big bone. What kind of bone would you say this was, Dr. Glazier? Leg bone. Human. Don't say. Not positive. Could be, though. Well, let's take a look, Jacko, where you found this bone. Ah. Hand me that stick of wood, will you, Doctor, so I can make this hole a little bigger. Well, I used to store my potatoes to keep them from freezing. Uh-huh. Ah. Ah. A button now. And look here, a knife. Funny-looking knife. Let me see it. I know the knife. Truth now, whose? Russell Colvin's knife. Russell Colvin now. He's not been around. Six years, seven. It's his knife, all right. And that's a button off his coat, too. And this is a human leg bone, you're saying, Doctor? I'm not saying it's not a human leg bone. Let's get along, Jacko. Come on, come on, boy. A few words about Sheriff Silas Skinner. A good man had been sheriff of the county for nearly 20 years, and there wasn't a man who could say he hadn't got a fair shake from old Silas, or woman either. An honest man with no bias nor prejudice. A direct man. Where's your husband, Sally? Why, I don't know. A man of few words. You kill him? No. Who killed him, Sally? My brother Jesse killed him, Sheriff. A cautious man. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. But I'm arresting you till I find out which. A man of his word. Jesse? Yes, Sheriff? You kill your brother-in-law, Russell Colvin? No, Sheriff, I did not. Who did? My brother Stephen did. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. 
But I'm arresting you till I find out which. Sheriff Silas Skinner sees it through. Stephen. Yes, Sheriff. I locked up your sister, and I locked up your brother. And I'm putting you behind bars, too. On what charge, Sheriff? For murdering. Murdering who? Russell Colvin. I didn't murder him, Sheriff. Jesse said you did. Jesse's lying. I've known Jesse for long. He don't lie. He's starting to now when he says I murdered. You didn't murder him by yourself. That's what you're saying, isn't it, Steve? I'm saying that right enough. Your sister have anything to do with the murdering? Not that I know of. I'm going to tell you something, boy. What? I'm going to tell you something, son. What? You say to me what happened, it'll be easier for you. What do you mean? A little jail, that's all. No hanging. There's a handshake that goes with it? There is indeed. Here's my hand, Sheriff. And mine. Now, how was it done, son? How was it done, boy? Russell Colvin was on his rocky upper field. And that's where you done it, son? And my brother got on one side of him. I got to the other. And that's how you done it, boy? I hit him with a tree branch. And Jesse with his fist? That's right. That's right. And that's the way you killed him? Yes, sir. Then you took him to another farm? Dark Glaciers. And to that barn? Dark Glaciers. And buried him? Yes, sir. We'll write this out, son, and you'll sign it, won't you, boy? Just a little jail? Boy, son. Just a little jail? I shook your hand. Then I'll sign it. Good boy. No! No, no! Stop taking on so, Stephen Bourne. Your brother Jesse's not acting up the way you are. They found us guilty. Well, you confess. They're gonna hang us. You said just a little jail. You said no hanging. I did what I could. You said no hanging. Now you listen to me. You killed your brother-in-law and you confessed to it and you had a trial by jury and they found you guilty. And the judge said hanging. Now that's the laws applied to you and your brother. So don't carry on. Let's do a thing, Sheriff. What thing? Put an advertisement in the newspapers. An advertisement for what? For Russell Colvin. Put a description in and say life depends on him turning up. You crazy? You killed him. You confessed you killed him. Who knows of Russell Coven? Whether killed, he stayed killed. He and his moonlight little people. Do it. Now, don't order me, son. Please. Huh? Please do it. Well, all right, son. I have a copy here of the Rutland Herald, a newspaper of the time which was circulated throughout this area of Vermont. I would like to read to you a classified ad which appeared in the issue of November 26, 1819. Printers of newspapers throughout the United States are desired to publish that Stephen Bourne of Manchester in Vermont is sentenced to be executed for the murder of Russell Colvin, who has been absent about seven years. Any person who can give information of said Colvin may save the life of the innocent by making immediate communication. Colvin is about five feet, five inches, light complexion, light-colored hair, blue eyes, and about 40 years of age. Why, that sounds like our hand, Russell. Except it doesn't say about a boy being with him. Hmm. I'll see if it is. 
Russell! Russell now! What was you doing, Russell? Talking to my boy, Lewis. Your son, ain't he? My son. They're looking for a man named Russell in Manchester. Oh? It's going to be a hanging unless they find a man named Russell. Russell Colville. You once said you was from Manchester. I am. They looking for you? I'm Russell Colvin. It's my duty to see you get back to Manchester, Russell. Mm, yes, it is. And so, two days before the scheduled hanging, Russell Colvin again appeared in Manchester. And the Bourne boys were not hanged. They were set free. What about the bone? Well, it was never proven to be a human bone. And the knife and button, Russell's, how had they gotten there? Russell always smiled when he was asked that. And what did his wife say to all this? You can come home if you want. I don't want you no more. I hear our son's with you. Yes, ma'am, he is. How did he find you a hundred miles away? Oh, the little people told him where I was. Them that lives on the path the moonlight makes. They told him. According to the report I have right here. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. The Bourne Brothers, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Virginia Gregg was heard as Sally, Lamont Johnson as Russell, William Conrad as Stephen, and Jack Crucian as Jesse. Featured in the cast were Irene Tedrow, Joseph Kearns, and Herb Butterfield. Bob Lamont speaking. Thank you. It is wonderful being here. <laughs> Anybody got a light, a match, a light? Give me, please. Just a light, brother. Thank you. Throw it to me. I got it. Got to be careful with these motherfucking matches. the first time I had an orgasm because we didn't come when you when you first started jacking up you didn't come right you had that funny feeling <laughs> first time I came I thought something was wrong with me Jack I said oh shit look what you done done to me An hour later I was back Jack <laughs> can you do it again and I just like to have fun because fucking is just fun. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, it ain't nothing dirty about it. I mean, because I don't want to offend anyone, because anybody in here don't know what I'm talking about fucking. <laughs> and I thought, you know, when you're in show business, you like to get pussy. Because <laughs> I remember what it was like in Peoria before I got into show business. You remember the great pussy drought of the 50s? I got caught up in that motherfucker boy. It was me. I discovered men, like we masturbate. See, women, women don't ever master nothing. Women like to fuck as much as we do. But they don't confess to the shit. They always be cool. You no, I don't want to fuck. But they go home, have all that electrical equipment and shit. I can't come behind one of them long things on my nothing. I remember I discovered masturbating in the tub. I was about nine, Jack. That's when you had to jack off like this, you had two fingers. Right, I said, hey, I'm on to something here. Shit, I bet dad don't know about this shit, man. They couldn't keep my ass out the tub after that. <laughs> One of these motherfucking hands, this hand here Jack, just got distorted. My father go, boy, what the fuck is wrong with your hand? Gertrude, come here. When I started in show business, I always thought it was cool because I went out with a Playboy bunny. I said, this is it. I have reached the top. Playboy bunny pussy. <laughs> and this lady, she took me to this beautiful apartment. It was like, just like shit you never see in your life. One of them kind of apartments where they say, if I don't get the pussy, I can fuck this couch. We was sitting down, eating the shit, having a little midnight snack. And she was cool, she was luscious, man. She was talking to me, she said, you know that act you do about the little kids? I said, yeah. I said, you like that? She said, yeah, would you mind talking like a little kid? Uh, now? She said, yeah. I said, oh, shit, that's my act, I You really, you know, little kid? You mean when, uh, okay. There, how you doing? You mean like this? And she said, yeah. <laughs> and she start taking shit off. And I start talking like a little kid. And the more she would take off, the younger I would get. <laughs> By the time she got to her panties, I was on the floor talking <laughs> I ended up in the womb. She gave birth to me about 9.30. All this shit happened before I was married. Of course, darling, you know that. Because we men, we do not cheat. I do not cheat. I will fuck. 
I'm sorry, darling, but I will never confess. Don't fuck around and confess. My wife can ask me, dear, no. Didn't this fuck? No, goddammit. No, I don't. Got no. But I saw you was in. No, I was not in the I had my dick out. I was not fucking nothing. Now don't no. I don't give a fuck. It's ten years. Ago. Did you? No. I was not fucking her. I told you that ten years ago. Goddammit. Being married, it's hard fucking work. I'm real happy, but the shit is hard. I mean, god damn. I mean, it's hard enough living by yourself, but living with somebody all the time. I know women got to feel this way too. Every day, the same motherfucker. In and Motherfucker don't look so good all the time. You still got to be looking at the motherfucker. And women like to be touching you all the time. God damn bitch, leave me the fuck alone. Just get the fuck out of my face. Yeah, I love you, but goddamn. It's something about when the pussy just there. You know, I like when the women, she said, put something new in the life. Yes, take a leave of absence. Come back in six months. Then we can fuck good. <laughs> and I try, like, I try to deal on emotional level and shit. It's real hard. It's, I, it's real, just, this shit is hard, like, expressing your feelings. Feelings are a bitch. Right? Like, women always talk about heartache and shit, how heartache, and they cry and shit. You don't know how we really feel when you fuck our hearts up. If you could see our ass. Man, be fronting it off, but that shit be hurting. <laughs> I mean, we go out in the bars and talk shit. Like, yeah, man, hey, man, yeah, shit, yeah, that bitch got, man, fuck it, you know. Uh, yeah, bring me a fifth of anything, shit. Mm. And you try not to call him up, right? You ever get to that? The man, you're trying to, I ain't gonna call this motherfucker. Like, oh, the bitch ain't home. <laughs> Then if it ain't home, you wondering where the fuck they are. You know? Why come she ain't worried about me or something? There's some heartache is like an education for men. Because we don't really grow up and graduate to a woman break your fucking heart. That's your diploma. If you come through that shit, Jack, you a man. Because that shit will either kill your ass or make you fat. <laughs> Especially if you see them six or seven months later with some other motherfucker, right? And you be like, yeah, hey, hey, man, look over the shirt. Huh. You go over and say, I'm going to be cool. I ain't going to hurt this motherfucker. I'm going to be cool. And it's usually some pretty motherfucker they be with. You know, one of them motherfuckers, nasty, pretty motherfuckers, right? And he'd be nice. And you want to rip this motherfucker's nuts off. Right, you be, oh, hi, baby, hi. Hey, man, yeah, hey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm all right. Uh, 
You seen my keys? I mean, you try to start any kind of shit, right? Like, what the fuck did you do with that button I had on my shirt, bitch? <laughs> this is this something that can make you ridiculous, man. But it's nice. It's nice. My wife always says, "Express yourself when you're angry." Express. I can't talk when I get angry. I get mad. My voice gets lower and lower. You know, and I'll be trying to say, "What's the matter, darling?" What's the matter? You know, right? So I left the house one time 147 times. And you ever leave and forget your keys? Fuck you! Yeah, bitch, kiss my yeah, motherfucker. Fuck you. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, your mama too. Mm. You bet that you, you shit. Just a bitch. Fuck. Hey, baby, I. And the loving part is so wonderful. It's so nice to find somebody to love you. I mean, that's the really. That's what you miss is just the loving part. Cause it's hard to find a motherfucker to love you. (laughs) You know. And if you do, man, don't fuck it up. Take my word for it. <laughs> Put up with it as long as you can. And when you can't, go off all the way. <laughs> Usually it's good to wait till New Year's. Who put 
If you can hear this, it can only mean that you've successfully tuned in to Ira Harmon's Pop Machine on WHPK 88.5 FM in Chicago. But don't push your luck. If I were you, I'd go to thepopmachine.net because thepopmachine.net can get you through times of no radio better than radio can get you through times of no pop machine. Think about that. Scotty, one to beam up. Yeah. <laughs> 